Hello everybody and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast episode number 203. Today's big Bible question, are there rational reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead? Well, hello friends, happy Saturday to you. Today we have finally reached a major milestone. Today is day 200 of the year. Perhaps it's going to be a year that will live in infamy, but we are 200 days through the year And that means this is the 200th episode of the podcast, even though it says it is episode number 203. Now, I would explain the discrepancy there, but honestly, the explanation is tedious and boring. And our topic today is anything but tedious and boring. Before we get to that, though, please allow me to ask you, almost beg you, to trot on over to iTunes if you get a chance today and leave us a review. It's been a long time since we've had a review. We've been languishing around with just uh, 20 or so reviews there. So if you're listening in the United States of America or the United Kingdom or Canada or Zimbabwe or wherever you are, New Zealand, Australia, uh, we've got listeners all around the world, go over there and drop us a review. Uh, Just look for the Bible Reading Podcast and leave a review. And thank you so much. Today we discuss my favorite topic, literally in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus. And today we are discussing a question that we have visited before, but we can't revisit it enough. Is it rational or merely religious to believe Jesus rose from the dead? Now, I believe that a strong look at the historic evidence, yes, I said evidence, makes the case that it is rational and reasonable to believe in the resurrection. Now, can I prove it to you today? with evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, no, of course I can't. Our belief is based on faith and not 10,000 pieces of irrefutable evidence. But that does not mean that faith in the resurrection of Jesus is irrational. Far from it. In fact, I firmly believe that when one actually examines the testimony of history about Jesus of Nazareth and the movement that followed him, that the factual happening of the resurrection is the most plausible and reasonable explanation for all that happened in the historical record. Now, before we discuss why, let me open with one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes that I don't believe I've ever mentioned on this podcast. Keller says, The resurrection of Jesus was a major historical problem no matter how you looked at it. Most modern historians made the philosophical assumption that miracles simply cannot happen, and that made the claim of the resurrection highly problematic. However, if you disbelieve the resurrection, then you had the difficulty of explaining how the Christian church got started at all. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why would you worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but on whether or not he rose from the dead. That's how the first hearers who heard the reports of his resurrection felt. They knew that if it was true that he really rose from the dead, it meant we can't live our lives anymore the way we want to. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, not coronavirus. I will add in to Mr. Keller's quote, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Most people think that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection... The burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it happened, and that's not completely the case, says Keller. The resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. It is not enough to simply believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. 
you must then come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. You have to provide some other plausible account for how things began. So today, I want to talk to you about one of the reasons I believe Jesus rose from the dead. It is an argument or a reason to believe. Not that I'm going to argue with you, but I'm going to present you a set of uh, propositions that I think point to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. And I call this argument the Lithuanian argument. But before we do that, let's go read the passage itself, Matthew 28, which may be my favorite chapter in the Bible. Maybe it's 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know. There's obviously a lot of great ones, but this is Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So, departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large amount of money and told them, Say this, say his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So here is an excerpt from a book I wrote a couple of years ago called Easter Fact or Fiction. It is available on Amazon.com for less than what it would cost to send a crew of eight people to Mars for a few years. What a bargain. That book contains 20 reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead. Put another way, it contains 20 rational, at least in my opinion, arguments for the factual resurrection of Jesus. One of those arguments is what I call the Lithuanian argument. So let me ask you, without cheating or Googling, can you name which countries border Lithuania? Could you locate Lithuania on a globe without country names? What about the capital city of Lithuania? Most Americans, at least uh, the ones I know, know very, very, very little about Lithuania. I know this for a fact because I have asked over 1,000 college students in my various classes 
uh, world history, New Testament, and Old Testament, what the capital of Lithuania was, and I honestly cannot recall a single student ever getting the correct answer, even though I had lots of great students. This is actually kind of sad, because, you know, Lithuania is a lovely country that, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, is approximately three times larger in landmass size than the country of Israel. So consider this, if you can do some analogizing here. The Roman Empire, at its height, was roughly about 51% the size of America, the United States of America, that is, in square miles. Therefore, Lithuania, compared to America in 2020, very roughly corresponds to the size and influence of Israel to the Roman Empire in the first century. In fact, Lithuania is actually a little bit larger proportionally compared to the United States of America than Israel was to the Roman Empire in the first century, at least from a mathematical perspective. And that allows us to perhaps get a vague understanding of how citizens in the Roman Empire might have viewed Israel by thinking about how citizens of the United States of America right now presently view the country of Lithuania. Now, you might, of course, argue that Lithuania is much farther away from the United States versus the distance of Israel to Rome, and you'd, of course, be correct at that. But remember that it would take the average American about eight hours to fly to Lithuania in the present time, while a journey from Israel to Rome in antiquity would likely take a couple of weeks, possibly more. Though the United States is farther on the globe away from Lithuania, in practical terms, that country is far closer to the states than Rome was to Israel in the first century. Imagine, then, that a teacher of a new and radically different religion arose in Lithuania in the 1700s. Now, I realize that that was not the proper name of the country in the 1700s, but just go with me here. Imagine that this particular teacher had no television shows, no operas, no compositions, no music, no books, art, or anything. He didn't even have any famous and important followers, and yet, within about 200 years of his ignominious death, his followers would be well on their way to dominating the religious landscape of America. Can you imagine such a crazy thing? Americans suddenly worshiping and telling others about this incredible, amazing Lithuanian teacher. A Lithuanian teacher who had never visited the United States of America in his entire lifetime. Now this is, euphemistically or metaphorically speaking, what Jesus and his followers did. Historically and factually, a teacher and his followers from a largely unknown, small and unimportant country came to dominate an entire empire within a short time after the death of that teacher. People must, skeptics must, have a rational theory to explain how Christianity spread so far and wide in such a short amount of time without military power or economic riches. Such a thing has never before happened in history and hasn't happened since. Keep in mind that the Jesus movement from the first few centuries spread across all cultures and languages, gaining adherents from a wide variety of ethnic backgrounds, 
many of whom were openly hostile to the Jewish people. Remember also that there were dozens of claimants to the title of Messiah around the time of Jesus, and none of them ever amounted to anything historically significant except for Jesus. I propose that a public bodily resurrection of Jesus is a plausible and rational answer to how Christianity came to dominate the greatest civilization in world history to that time, the Roman Empire. In fact, I'm honestly not sure there is another answer that could be proposed to explain the cross-cultural dominance and appeal of Christianity in the first five centuries A.D. Skeptical theories, for instance, the one that Jesus never existed, which almost no peer-reviewed scholar, atheist or otherwise, believes, or that perhaps an imposter took his place after the crucifixion, or that the resurrection was invented by his followers, or that they hallucinated him, or even that Jesus was simply a fantastic teacher who had his reputation greatly enhanced by legendary exaggeration decades after his death, none of those things account very well for the explosion of Jesus' followers all across the world, permeating multiple cultures and languages. Now, for your information, the countries that border Lithuania are Latvia, Poland, and Belarus. The capital city of Lithuania is Vilnius, and a world-conquering king coming out of a small town in Lithuania is about as likely as one coming out of a small town in Israel. And yet, it happened. Tiny, insignificant at the time, Israel produced the most famous and influential person the world has ever known, an indisputable fact that only makes sense in light of the resurrection. Perhaps you've heard skeptics raise objections about the supposed fact that nobody, of course, nobody other than all of the writers of the various books eventually collated into the New Testament, nobody ever mentioned Jesus in writing during his lifetime or shortly after. First, as you will read shortly, that's quite an exaggeration. There are extant documents from over 40 people that wrote about Jesus within 150 years of his death and resurrection. Now, if that number seems a little small to you, then consider that there are only extant or currently existing works from 10 people who wrote about Tiberius Caesar within 150 years of his lifetime, and he was the emperor of Rome for over 20 years at the height of its impact. Very likely, there were many more people than 43 who actually wrote about Jesus, but many, many books and writings from 2,000 years ago have disappeared for a wide variety of reasons. In fact, I challenge you to find a book that is extant. In other words, we still have a copy of it that was written in the first century about a first century person. Such things are almost non-existent in the historical record. So, in keeping with our Lithuanian thought experiment, consider this. If a worker of miracles and a great teacher really did arise in Lithuania in the 1700s, even if that man were to also genuinely come back from the dead, how many Americans do you think would write about him within a hundred years of his lifetime? Of those that did, how many of those writings would survive almost 2,000 years? If the Bible accounts of how Jesus lived his life are exactly true, and I believe they are, then there is very little reason nor means that the Romans or Greeks would have known about Jesus during his lifetime because he never left the country or even decades afterwards. In the same way that an 18th century American would be highly unlikely to 
write about a Lithuanian holy man, even one that did legitimately amazing miracles, a first century Greek or Roman would be highly unlikely to write about a Jewish Messiah. So, to finish up our thought experiment, it is absurd. It strains credulity to think about a Lithuanian holy man who never wrote a book, there was no picture surviving of him, stayed in his country his whole life. It strains credulity to think that the majority of Americans in the 21st century would worship such a Lithuanian holy man. Because that country, no offense to my Lithuanian friends, that country doesn't hold a vast amount of significance to the United States of America today any more than the country of Israel held a strong amount of significance to the Roman Empire of its day. The fact that within 200 years, 250 years, 300 years of the crucifixion of Jesus, that Christianity began to dominate the Roman Empire is a historical fact that nobody denies, and it demands an explanation. And I have never heard a good historical explanation for that the except for the fact that Jesus is the one and only person in all of history who overcame death and was raised from the dead and promised the same to those who would follow him in faith believing. Chew on that, my friends. And let's go now to a brand new book for us, Judges chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. Judah said to his brother Simeon, Come with me to my allotted territory and let's fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with him. When Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adani Bezek in Bezek, fought against him and struck down the Canaanites and Perizzites. When Adani Bezek fled, they pursued him, cut him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adani Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, put it to the sword, and set the city on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah marched down to fight against the Canaanites who were living in the hill country, the Negev, and the Judean foothills. Judah also marched against the Canaanites who were living in Hebron. Hebron was formerly named Kiriath Arba. They struck down Shesai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they marched against the residents of Debir. Debir was formerly named Kiriath Sefer. Caleb said, Whoever attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer... I will give my daughter Akshah to him as a wife. So Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, captured it, and Caleb gave his daughter Akshah to him as his wife. When she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. As she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What do you want? She answered him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me land in the Negev. Give me springs also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, had gone up with the men of Judah from the city of Palms to the wilderness of Judah, which was in the Negev of Arad. They went to live among the people. Judah went with his brother Simeon, struck the Canaanites who were living in Zephath, and completely destroyed the town. 
So they named the town Hormah. Judah captured Gaza and its territory, Ashkelon and its territory, and Ekron and its territory. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the people who were living in the plain because these people had iron chariots. Judah gave Hebron to Caleb, just as Moses had promised. Then Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak who lived there. At the same time, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. The Jebusites have lived among the Benjamites in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. They sent spies to Bethel. The town was formerly named Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the town and said to him, Please, show us how you got into town, and we will show you kindness. When he showed them the way into the town, they put the town to the sword, but released the man and his entire family. Then the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a town, and named it Luz. That is the name till today. At that time... Manasseh failed to take possession of Beth Shean and Tanakh and their surrounding villages, or the residents of Dor, Ibliam, and Megiddo and their surrounding villages. The Canaanites were determined to stay in this land. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out completely. At that time, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were leaving, living in Gezer, so the Canaanites have lived among them in Gezer. Zebulon failed to drive out the residents of Kitron or the residents of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them and served as forced labor. Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko or of Sidon or Achlab or Achzib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land because they failed to drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Beth Anath. They lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land, but the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath served as their forced labor. The Amorites forced the Danites into the hill country and did not allow them to go down into the valley. The Amorites were determined to stay in Har Hares, Ajalon, and Shaalbim. When the house of Joseph got the upper hand, the Amorites were made to serve as forced labor. The territory of the Amorites extended from the Scorpion's ascent, that is, from Selah, upward. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. 
They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked with a guard standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about oh, 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census, and he attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, her city gates languish, her people are on the ground in mourning. 
Jerusalem's cry rises up. Their nobles send their servants for water. They go to cisterns. They find no water. Their containers return empty. They are ashamed and humiliated. They cover their heads. The ground is cracked since no rain is fallen on the land. The farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field gives birth and abandons her fawn since there is no grass. Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights, panting for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there are no green plants. Though our iniquities testify against us, Lord, act for your name's sake. Indeed, our rebellions are many. We've sinned against you. Hope of Israel, its Savior, in times of distress. Why are you like a resident alien in the land, like a traveler stopping only for the night? Why are you like a helpless man, like a warrior, unable to save? Yet you are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Don't leave us. This is what the Lord says concerning these people. Truly, they love to wander. They never rest their feet, so the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of these people. If they fast, I will not hear their cry of despair. If they offer burnt and grain offering, I will not accept them. Rather, I will finish them off by sword, famine, and plague. And I replied, Oh no, Lord God, the prophets are telling them you won't see sword or suffer famine. I will certainly give you lasting peace in this place. But the Lord said to me, These prophets are prophesying a lie in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, worthless divination, the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, though I did not send them, and who say, There will never be sword of famine in this land. By sword and famine, these prophets will meet their end. The people they are prophesying to will be thrown into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. There will be no one to bury them. They, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, I will pour out their own evil on them. You are to speak this word to them. Let my eyes overflow with tears day and night. They may not stop, for my dearest people have been destroyed by a crushing blow, an extremely severe wound. If I go out to the field, look, those slain by the sword. If I enter the city, look, those ill from famine. For both prophet and priest travel to a land they do not know. Have you completely rejected Judah? Do you detest Zion? Why do you strike us with no hope of healing for us? We hoped for peace, but there was nothing good, for a time of healing, but there was only terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, Lord, the iniquity of our ancestors. Indeed, we have sinned against you. For your name's sake, don't despise us. Don't disdain your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us. Do not break it. Can any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain, or can the skies alone give showers? Are you not the Lord our God? We therefore put our hope in you, for you have done all these things. Amen. Bless the Lord. Dear friends, may it be a blessed Saturday for you. Good day and Godspeed.